Now we're joined by the experts at Vetify, a new data analytics and thought leadership company that is transforming financial services from an industry to a community, one relationship at a time. $800 billion, I think we have to say that again, $800 billion and counting for an industry that is, is still growing in size is impressive. Todd, I actually thought about having you hang around and talk crypto ETFs with uh, James and I, but then I thought, you know what? That would probably be torture for you, and I didn't want to put you through that. I think you you got the best in the business to talk crypto uh, ETFs with you, I guess the two of you. Uh, I, uh, I'm i sorry I'm not there in person. I imagine there'll be some ribs or something after to celebrate. Before we uh, get into the topics that you and I have, any quick uh, comments or, or thoughts on crypto ETFs? Anything at all you'd like to offer up to the ETF Prime audience? Well, I'm, I imagine that James is listening, so I'm excited to, that he and Eric Valchunas agree with what I think is going to happen. They, they are now, their goalposts are in January or February of 2024 when, an ET, when a Bitcoin ETF uh, spot Bitcoin ETF will be launched. As you, you and the audience probably knows, I have a bet with his colleague, Eric Valchunas, uh, that it won't happen in 2023. And I think we're likely to see by exchange when we're all together in February 2024 that we could see multiple spot products trading. And I'll be more than happy to celebrate that they were right, that a product was faster than I expected, but also more than happy to celebrate that I was right in that it wasn't in 2023. So get James on record to confirm when he actually thinks a product is going to come to market. I 100% will. And, uh, you know, things are just moving so fast in this space. It seems like every day there's a new headline or or something uh, is updated on a filing or or what have you. Now, I think, as you know, I'm on record as saying that I think the uh, first launch will be in January. And I, I actually tweeted something out last night that maybe James and I can talk about which is I just don't know why the SEC would accelerate their decision-making when they don't have to make a final decision on the uh, ARC 21-share spot Bitcoin ETF until January 10th. But again, things are moving very quickly. So it's going to be interesting. I think your bet is going to uh, come down to the wire. So so we'll see. Um, okay, Todd, so I, I have a, a grab bag of ETF topics, as I mentioned at the top, and I, I thought I'd start – you, you know, we had another ETF milestone recently, and it wasn't a big one, but I, I do think worth mentioning, which was that the Vanguard S&P 500 ETF, ticker VU, VOO, that turned 13 years old. And again, that's not a huge deal in and of itself. But what I think is noteworthy is that in those 13 years, VU has grown to become the third largest ETF, third largest, some $325 billion in assets. And you may recall that one of my uh, 2023 ETF predictions, which, as an aside, uh, those are not looking so good. It's been a, a really tough year for me on that front. Though I will say, for people who have followed these for a while, my overall track record is still pretty good. It's like uh, when Pete Rose or whoever has a batting slump for a month or two, but they're still hitting you know, 350 or 400. That's me. Uh, but in all seriousness, you may recall that one of my predictions was that VU or uh, IVV, the iShares S&P 500 ETF, or even both, would overtake SPY, the Spider S&P 500 ETF and assets. That's clearly not going to happen this year. Uh, but I guess my question is, do you think we could see that 
by next year or in 2025? And give us a few thoughts on the uh, success of VU itself over these past 13 years. Yeah, so I was at the New York Stock Exchange bell ringing when VU was celebrating its 13th birthday. 13 is a lucky number for some people and unlucky for others. Your fellow Kansas City Chiefs fan, Taylor Swift, obviously has made it more cool. Uh, but in the Jewish tradition, that's a time for celebration. My son is also 13 years old and had his bar mitzvah. So I was just excited about turning 13 for VU. Not only is it the third large GTF, but it's been gaining market share on IVV and SPY in the last year and on the last few years. And it's likely to pass by before we know it. I don't want to put a timetable uh, on when it will be, and probably in 25 or 26. It's certainly, I don't think it's going to be in 2024. But what's exciting also is just this is trading the way that you would think an S&P 500-based ETF would trade over more than 4 million shares on average in the last 50 days. It's extremely appealing for those advisors or smaller institutions that are putting money to work in medium and, and large sizes to be able to get trades done. So this is not just a cheap, broad market-based ETF. It's a highly liquid one, too, and that's just worthy of celebrating. And, boy, we pivoted from, from crypto to perhaps one of the more boring, largest uh, core ETFs around. That's a good point on VU's liquidity because one of the things that people always point to in terms of SPY's success is that that massive liquidity moat that it has. But to your point, VU trades, obviously, with extremely tight spreads. So does IVV. And you would think as those continue to grow, those spreads, which are already minuscule, will only get um, smaller. For those keeping track at home, by the way, and these totals are as of yesterday, SPY currently has $395 billion in assets, IVV $347 billion. And then VU, $325 billion, as I mentioned. There's also, of course, SPLG, which is a mini spy, has a, a cheaper expense ratio. I believe, what, three basis points versus nine for spy. That has about $20 billion in assets. And, of course, expense ratios have played a big role here in VU and, and IVV and even SPLG garnering assets. Um, sort of related, I... One of my predictions that I'm actually thinking about for 2024 is Vanguard surpassing iShares in total ETF assets. And so if you look right now, I'm, I'm throwing out a lot of stats today, but Vanguard is about $200 billion behind iShares, roughly $2.3 trillion in ETF assets for iShares to $2.1 trillion for Vanguard. Do you think that's possible, that even if VU doesn't, pass SPY to take the individual ETF crown, uh, you know, in the next year or so, maybe they can still take the overall crown by passing iShares? So I think we're actually more likely to see SPY get passed probably around the same time, maybe not that much ahead of, of VU passing, I'm sorry, Vanguard passing BlackRock, but just BlackRock is still pulling in a lot of money mm -hmm. uh, through their products. TLT, which I don't know that we're going to spend time talking about, is an $18 billion uh, net inflow gatherer, and we're seeing ESCOV and Qual. So it is not just IVV uh, and, and VU that the two firms are competing with, but what I am encouraged to see is that Vanguard's fixed income ETF uh, continues to grow, continues to pull in money, because BND has pulled in 
$14 billion this year. BNDX, which is the international uh, core fixed-income product that they have, $6 billion. Their Muni ETF, VTEB, VTEB, another $4 billion. I know I'm throwing out a lot of tickers the way that you're throwing out a lot of stats, but what's also exciting to see is that Vanguard plans to expand their fixed-income lineup to include active ETFs. They've got a couple slated for December uh, they're a core bond and a core plus bond ETF. Those are going to be really cheap, you know, 10 and 20 basis points in fees that match the mutual fund counterparts. I think Vanguard is just raising the bar in terms of education and visibility and fixed income. And a shameless plug, they will be at the Vetify Income Strategy Symposium taking place on Friday, October 27th, talking about active fixed income strategies. That's Vanguard it is. So folks can register at ETFtrends.com. You know, it's interesting because I think, I'll speak for myself, just having been in this industry as long as I have, you you almost take Vanguard's ETF success for granted a a little bit, right? They just keep raking in um, assets year after year. You mentioned some of the uh, fixed income ETFs they have with B&D. Now, you know, $95 billion largest bond ETF out there, some of their new launches. You, you just sort of take that success for granted. But but you look, and again, year after year, they just continue to, to rake in assets. I had a uh, a stat that I pulled. This was from CityWire a few weeks ago. So in March of 2017, Vanguard's assets were 63% of iShares. Three years later, in March of 2020, they had only moved up to 68%. But now, a little over three years after that, they're at 90% uh, plus of, uh, of iShares assets. So it just shows you how fast they're, uh, they're coming. Um, Todd, you mentioned Vanguard's active bond ETFs. And I actually wanted to ask you about a recent Vetify survey that ties in here where you uh, polled advisors on whether they prefer an active, passive, or mixed approach to core bond allocation. And let me just give listeners the results, and then I I, I want to get your reaction. So 59% of respondents said a mixed approach, 59%. 28% said active, and then only 13% said passive. Did that surprise you at all, that uh, passive number? And I know active managers have typically fared better on the fixed income side in in terms of performance, right, compared to equities. And so maybe it's just that simple. But I'm curious what you made of these results because the largest bond ETFs are all passive. Uh, You know, you have to go down the the list of bond ETFs quite a ways to find JPST, the the first active ETFs there. And then I, I looked at the data over the weekend I show out of the top 50 bond ETFs, only three are active. And so what did you make of those survey results? So let me just take a slight step back and just say we did this survey during a webcast with a partner that's in the mutual fund space. And and so an active mutual fund, we asked the question, so I still use the data because I found it actually more exciting given that there isn't, there's more of a presence in the active mutual fund space for fixed income than there is currently an active fixed thing. I'm sorry, an active ETF presence. But so what jumped out at me more was that 59% mm-hmm. uh, that people are, it's not active or passive. It's active and passive being blended together within portfolios. And so what's exciting is to me in the ETF space, as you noted, 
We're seeing a growing supply of products. We're seeing growing demand off of a very small base. We have lots of firms that have had a legacy presence in the mutual fund space bring some of their better ideas or versions of the better ideas into the ETF marketplace. Capital Group uh, has expanded their active ETF lineup. Uh, most recently, they added a core bond fund, CGCB. We're actually going to have the, one of the managers of that fund at our income symposium uh, taking place later on this week. But we've got BlackRock and DoubleLine. JP Morgan added a new bond ETF. Uh, I think it's uh, JBND uh, a week or so ago. PIMCO, all these firms are bringing their best ideas. So I think it's going to give investors and advisors the opportunity to use active and passive together within the same ETF, uh, in the ETF universe, as opposed to just being mutual funds uh, or ETFs. No, I think that's well said. And uh, I'm full of stats this morning. I pulled another stat, which I believe was from a piece that you wrote, uh, that you mentioned the the base for, for bond ETFs. Bond ETFs represent approximately 20% of industry assets, but they've gathered more than 40% of new inflows in the first nine months of uh, this year. And of course, a lot of that's driven by the uh, market environment, but I think we would both agree the adoption of fixed income ETFs is uh, is clearly accelerating. Uh, a, a few other topics here, Todd. You mentioned legacy brands entering the ETF space, and, and this is also on the note of active bond ETFs as well. Last week, as I know you're aware, Morgan Stanley launched five new ETFs, and three of those were active bond ETFs. All, all of these ETFs, by the way, lean into the brands and uh, investment capabilities of Eaton Vance and Parametric. And uh, I, I don't know why I'm doing this to myself, but I'm, again, going to bring <laughs> up my lackluster 20. You already knew where I was headed. My lackluster 2023 ETF predictions, because one of those was that Morgan Stanley would be the ETF issuer of the year. And I really didn't define that. I, I should have. I, I just thought it'd be pretty clear at the end of the year, if somebody like you and, and our other counterparts in the ETF space look back, we would all agree that Morgan Stanley was the issuer of the year. But that prediction doesn't look so good either. You add it to my, my list here. And so I'm just curious, how, how would you assess Morgan Stanley's first year of ETFs? Well, I think the reason you said so was they were going to be a tell or a test to see whether or not ESG, which was the product that they came to market with under the, the Calvert brand, those ESG ETFs, if they gained traction, that would be a sign, given the, the challenges, uh, political landscape uh, and the institutional demand that was diminishing, if Morgan Stanley could pull it off and be a success story out of the gate, that would that, you know, that would be a, a come out of nowhere, you know, uh, unexpected player. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, so somebody who didn't get drafted uh, would all of a sudden be starting in the NFL uh, as the example. So I think it's incomplete because, yes, they just expanded their lineup. They're skating. To, I'm going to mix metaphors here, but they're skating to where the puck at, actually is going and is likely to stay, which is income through fixed income and options-based equity strategies with the parametric equity premium income ETF, Pappy, uh, or Poppy, I guess, if, if uh, the way I think of the Boston Red Sox star, or an Eaton Vance's high-yield ETF, EVHY, active fixed income, income-based strategies that are different than what J.P. Morgan has had success in with J Jeppy. I think Morgan Stanley is going to have more success with those products 
than we've seen so far with ESG, but I think it's still early. Um, so don't be so hard on yourself uh, with your predictions. But I would ask you, I don't know who my answer, or I'll say to you, I don't know who my answer is thus far for the ETF Asset Manager of the Year. Um, I, I, we obviously could go boring with Vanguard, who's had continued success in gaining market share, and iShares with the fixed income suite of products. But I'm not sure that I have a better answer right now. Uh, do you? No, I was actually going to try to pin you down. You beat me to it. Um, you know, J.P. Morgan is another issuer you can look at. And I know a product like Jeppy is sort of 2022-ish. But you look at the carry-through or the carryover, that's had pretty impressive. Dimensional, they hit $100 billion in ETF assets. There are a lot of candidates yeah, there. Point. So yeah, I, I think we're going to have to look. But I, I will say, you know, I don't see somebody out there like uh, Capital Group, who we had last year, right? I, I think Capital Group, they just came on the scene immediately. I think you called this immediately, um, had billions of dollars in assets. They looked, they looked pretty clear uh, is, is an ETF issuer of the year last year. But, yeah, I don't know that we, we, we have that just yet. Um, Maybe when I come back, we'll have a better answer. I, I imagine <laughs> I'll come back in six or so weeks just in time to, to wrap up the year. That's right. Hey, uh, r- real quick, in addition to Morgan Stanley, um, there was another interesting batch of new launches from iShares last week. So they rolled out a suite of target date ETFs. These are called the iShares LifePath target date ETFs. And this is an initial lineup of, uh, of 10 products, expense ratios between 8 and 11 basis points, so very inexpensive and they say that they're uh, targeting, uh, no pun intended, they're targeting the 57 million Americans that lack access to a 401k or employer-sponsored retirement plan. What, what, what did you think about these? Because asset allocation ETFs and, and target date ETFs don't really have a stellar history in the ETF space. Yeah, for the reasons I think that advisors historically have not, and you, you are one and you can offer more, real-world experience than I do, but it's harder to do one ETF that has multiple ETFs in it. It, it seems like it's doing the work for you, and the advisor wants to show more ETFs uh, within the broader portfolio. I think by going direct to retail, this is that's the right way of going to it. And when you are the, still the industry leader, uh, market share leader in ETFs, you win by making the pie get bigger. And so the way to make the pie get bigger is to go to people who aren't using ETFs today and convince them that ETFs are the answer. So I think we're a decade plus after we saw a version of this retail adoption and usage and interest in ETFs is considerably stronger than it was beforehand. I think these are going to be more successful in that they'll survive and they'll gather assets, but it's going to be about education. iShares needs, BlackRock needs to educate people that these products exist and they make it easy for them to save for retirement uh, for, I think, as little as 10 basis points. So institutional-level pricing for retail investors with BlackRock's expertise, it should work. It just is going to require education to make it happen. Yeah, and I would say the timing for these does feel a lot better, especially if you think coming off the, the meme stock craze and everything we saw over the past few years, you may have some investors who – uh, are managing their their own retirement funds who go, you know what, uh, I just want to put it on autopilot, have somebody else take care of it, I can invest in these target date ETFs and be done with it. 
uh, and especially younger investors who, as we know, this has been well documented, are much more likely to use ETFs versus another type of investment vehicle. Uh, again, I just think maybe the timing of these is more opportune for uh, for BlackRock. Todd, lastly here, I, I have to bring this up. You wrote an excellent piece last week on one of my favorite ETF topics. Not not my favorite ETF structure, but one of my favorite ETF topics, and that's non-transparent ETFs. And as I think you know, I've been on record saying that I believe these things are dead in the water. But in your piece, you said, hey, look, these ETFs are still alive and kicking. Their obituary was written prematurely. And so I'd love to have you just briefly elaborate on why. Why why, why do you think these have a future? Well, first of all, they have a present, too. So (laughs) they are a small part of the marketplace, but they've been growing. Uh, and so in the piece, which I wrote on ETFtrends.com, it's called Semi-Transparent, ETFs are alive and well. I talk about how the asset base, uh, we've seen net inflows every quarter toward, towards these semi-transparent ETFs. That's the phrase I'm going to use. We've seen a fourfold increase in the assets uh, in over two years, again, off of a very small base. But there's still $7 billion dollars. Uh, in these products offered by Fidelity and by T. Rowe Price and American Century. These are firms that have had success running active management. They're now making those products and have made those products uh, and have three-year track records into the ETF space. I also like that it's been a gateway for firms like DoubleLine and First Manhattan to offer their first products. They might not be in the ETF marketplace. Now, whether they need to be or not, if they deliver value and they deliver alpha, then they're offering uh, something that investors want. I think we should be celebrating the fact that there's another way to offer ETFs. Uh, It's been written off. I'm sorry. Your predictions this year are not coming to to fruition. But let's not call uh, call the cemetery for for product. $7 billion. I I guess I want a new tagline as I come in. (laughs) Semi-transparent ETFs have seven billion dollars don't write them off todd that's a low blow man bringing up the predictions again uh you know what i'll I'll actually give you another uh tip of the cap because we have a uh a bet on gold etfs as well physical gold etfs which was another one of my 2023 etf predictions i think the the bet was that they would have more than five billion in inflows this year and last i checked they weren't even close uh, so I'll allow the uh, the low blow because my predictions were <laughs> horrible this year. But just to be clear, you really think semi-transparent ETFs have a have a future? Like I, I get you're saying they have a presence. There's seven billion in them now, but you, you think this structure, if we look back five years from now, ten years from now, will ha- have grown in usage? I do. I think because now not all of them, not all of them are going to outperform and deliver value the same way that any other active ETF is going to do so. But I think for the fact that Tiro Price and, and Fidelity are perfect examples, they have launched ETF versions of pre-existing mutual funds with a strong track record where they would be showing their cards too much and, and hurting the existing mutual fund shareholders. So as long as there's money in the Tiro Price Blue Chip Growth Mutual Fund or the Fidelity Blue Chip Growth Mutual Fund, because sorry, that's all I can come up with right now, then it makes sense that for those firms to offer an ETF version. I think the ETFs are going to gain market share relative to the mutual fund going forward. 
I think we're going to continue to see these products. I, I guess real quick, I was in a separate client event uh, that I did, an educational event with a different asset management partner that did not offer a semi-transparent ETF. This came up. I asked the room, when's the last time people looked at the holdings within their actively managed ETF? And nobody had looked at it yesterday. So if no one's looking at it yesterday, that doesn't necessarily mean we need to disclose the holdings yesterday. These ETFs are trading. They're functioning. They're going to be a smaller part of the active ETF universe, but they're going to play a role within the ETF ecosystem the same way that we have uh, semiconductor ETFs. Not everybody's going to buy them, but when they want them, they're there. No, I think all good points, um, and I agree with you regarding investors checking their holdings every day. I don't know that they necessarily do that, though. I'm a little surprised to hear that coming from the, the person who champions knowing what you own. <laughs> I'm kidding. but So I, I people should check their holdings. They should. And they should make sure that what they what is being disclosed is available and is something they are comfortable with. I would love it that people went to ETFdatabase.com, which is one of our publications, to look inside the ETF on a daily basis. That would be a win for us, and that would certainly be a win for education. It's just not happening on a daily basis. It's not happening periodically, which is healthy, I guess, so that people don't spend too much time staring at, at the screen for the wrong reason. This might be a good future bet. We'll have to think about what the asset level is, but you know, we, we can pick an asset threshold over the next three or five years or whatever in place of bet in terms of what non-transparent ETF assets will be. But, uh, Todd, we are going to have to leave it there. Excellent stuff, as always. Thank you for joining me. Yeah, and I'll enjoy the next half hour of talking about Bitcoin and Bitcoin ETF prospects with somebody who is just as passionate about it as you are, my friend. I can't wait for it. Uh, thank you. That was Todd Rosenbluth, head of research at Vetify.